Well, guys, good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to watch and listen. Well, we are wrapping up our series, Filters, the Letter of Jude, as we have gone through all of Jude's letter over the last seven weeks. This is our last week, and I want three questions. As we land the plane, three questions to be on our mind as we wrap up. One, why does it matter what we believe? Why does it matter what you believe? Two, what do we believe? What do you believe? And then what do we do with what we believe? What do you do with what you believe? So why does it matter what we believe? Why do we believe? And what do we do with what we believe? So in our culture, there are two types of churches. The first church is a church that believes truth must be told no matter the cost to an evil culture. Like sin must be named, behavior needs to be called out, culture needs to be destroyed, it needs to be demolished. And there's a line that says, okay, the church is on this side of the line and culture is on this side of the line. There's no mixing the two together. Um, th- this, church, this type of church believes that they are to convict people of sin. Uh, this version of church doesn't attract. It's like scorched earth, legalism, judgmentalism. And that type of philosophy, that type of culture will actually draw people in that are scorched earth, they are rule followers, maybe um, they struggle with their own pride. Okay, so they're going to attract those type of people. Now the church, on the other side, is the church that seeks to identify with the culture to bridges and acceptance. They avoid calling people out. Uh, They bury aspects of the Bible because they're too uncomfortable. Maybe they're too offensive to those in culture. They market Jesus as friend, or in some cases, homeboy. And this version of church doesn't lead to transformation. There's a lot of fluff with no substance. Uh, Followers and maybe attenders and members of these types of churches, they are malnourished spiritually. Like they are starving. And it's not offering anything different than the world. I mean, the only difference is we call it church, we call it Christianity, and there's no difference between the pastor and the bartender. I mean, it's both. They listen and they give self-help. So let's simplify the two types of churches. The first is only orthodoxy, and the second is only orthopraxy. And we're going to describe and define what those terms are. But one way to say is one church is only truth, and the other church is only grace. Like both churches can attract, can, can draw crowds, Like they have people, they can get big, they can be big churches, they experience numerical growth, they can have millions in the bank, they can even have people accept Jesus as their savior. But neither approach honors how Jesus attracts people. Jesus attracted people through both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, both truth and grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought against Hitler's regime, not with a gun, not with a sword, not with media, but with the Bible. This is what he said. He said, grace without truth is cheap. Grace without truth is cheap. I mean, unless one understands the weight and reality of their sin, man, grace isn't amazing. Unless I understand the weight and the reality of my sin, grace isn't amazing. All right, so let's define orthodoxy and orthopraxy. All right, so orthodoxy is right beliefs. That means these beliefs are defined by scripture, by creeds and councils early on in the church history, and then even later we've done those again. 
pastors and theologians and in that order. So everything ought to be backed by scripture. Like when it comes to scripture, we have Jesus's teachings. And then we have the Hebrew Bible that points to Jesus, the Messiah. And then the New Testament writings after the resurrection point back to Jesus as the Messiah. So orthodoxy is right beliefs and then orthopraxy is right practice. These right practices are guided by right beliefs or orthodoxy. Like if I follow Jesus, it means that I practice what he teaches. I don't pick and choose. There are some things that Jesus teach, teaches that is very uncomfortable. But I believe it to be the right way. So that means that I'm all in with Jesus. That if I choose to follow him, that means that I'm all in with what he teaches. Okay, you remember the questions we asked? And we want to kind of keep in our mind as we go through the last couple verses of Jude's letter. Why does it matter what we believe? What do we believe? And what do we do with what we believe? So Jude is wrapping up. He's landing the plane. And he's trying to rally these local churches to stay committed to orthodoxy, right beliefs, and orthopraxy, right practice. There's pressure from the Greek culture. There's Roman persecution. And for some people, it's so unbearable that they're walking away from faith. Others, man, they are tempted to fit culture in or fit Christ in with culture. They're trying to mix match the two together because they want to be comfortable. They want it to be more palatable. They, they want to make sure that it's comfortable enough where they're not going to get persecuted, but yet they still are considered followers of Jesus. It's almost like he's a football coach and it's a halftime and he's like, guys, we need to stick to the game plan. The game plan is working and we need to stick to the game plan. And so he's rallying up and saying, listen, we need to stick to the game plan. The game plan is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. As we observe through this series, we live in a very similar culture in America than, than what it was like in the Roman Empire. And so here's a clip from one of our network pastors, Matt Chandler. And he's explaining the tension between American culture and following Christ. Take a look. Well, well Babylon always promises the same thing. Uh, whatever iteration she takes. Of course, if you're in 96 AD, that's Rome. If you're in, and here goes back to wonky or janky interpretations of Revelation. If you, you've got a bad lens by which you approach the book, then the United States is city on a hill that's about, but if you're reading it honestly, right, this isn't some reference to Russia or China. Like, this is about us. Hmm. Like, like, the U.S. is just as much Babylon. Her culture just as much says, you, you want all your sensuality satisfied, come to me. Don't worship Jesus, come to me. You, you want comfort, don't worship, come to me. You, you, you want all your, you come to me. You want your best life now, you come to me. That's the lie of Babylon. And wherever, because Babylon riding the beast, right? That's the, the first beast that comes out of the sea, which the Bible clearly tells us is dragon or Satan manipulated political power. And, and so Babylon, the sensuality of culture riding the back of state power, is always trying to seduce us away. And the text clearly says this. Mm -hmm. The whole purpose of the first beast in Babylon is to get people to stop worshiping Jesus and instead worship the yeah. state or worship the culture. And did we not just get a front row seat to that nonsense? Mm. And so right now, what Babylon's doing right among us, right in the middle of our churches, is telling our people, hey, 
There's a sensuality that'll satisfy your soul. There's a kind of sex that'll make everything work. There's a kind of comfort that'll make it all come together, but it's not found in Jesus. It's found over here. And, and this is what's flickering in front of our faces all day long. And this is what almost all of our entertainment's trying to convince us of. This is what politicians are trying. These are what all the demonic ideologies driving the cancerous breakdown of culture in our day are, are doing. They're trying to woo us away. It's the whole point. The answer that you seek is not in worship of Jesus. It's over here. Now, I appreciate the insight that Matt had. All right, let's jump in to Jude. So this is Jude 24. Notice what he writes. Now, all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. And he's going to bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. So there's a lot there. There's a few takeaways for us. And so let's look at the first takeaway. Judas providing a friendly reminder that we need God as we can't save ourselves through positive thoughts and self-actualization. I'll say that again, self-actualization. Right. He's providing this friendly reminder that we need God because we cannot save ourselves. We can't save ourselves through positive thoughts, through self-help. It's not going to happen. And so Jude is clarifying that the good news is not self-help. The gospel is not self-help. It's impossible to have your best life now on your own strength. It's just not possible. The heart of any self-help is that at the end of the day, you're the one still in charge. You make the decisions. You get others to follow you. You learn from others who have helped themselves. You are the one that's creating the right systems that may lead to wealth and health. Do you know the reason why so many people fall away, or another way we could say it is they're all in and they sort of fizzle out days, weeks, months, and maybe even years later is because they've done it on their own strength. They've, they've, they've followed God, they've followed Jesus apart from God. They, they've tried to do it on their own. They try to go to church. They try to pray. They try to read their Bible all on their own strength. It's like they didn't even invite God in the process. They, they want to kind of do it because it was the cultural thing to do back in the day or now it's not so much. Guys, depending on the amount of energy spent will determine how long we last. Like if we're doing this on our own strength, if I put a lot of energy in, that means I'm gonna I'm gonna get a long I'm gonna go a long time. But I'm eventually going to fall. I'm eventually gonna fizzle out because I'm doing this on my own strength. Man, none of us are strong enough, man. We're all gonna get tired and we cannot go all in for the long haul on our own strength. Y'all, I've met Navy SEALs, man, the elite of the elite in our military, who've tried to follow Christ on their own strength. They try to follow Christ apart from God and it didn't work, man. They fizzled out. Guys, we are not meant to do this by ourselves, man. We need help. Look, we're gonna stumble, but God keeps us from falling away. We may stumble, but God keeps us from falling away. That was the second takeaway. And God keeps us from falling away because he has forgiven our sin. He makes us spiritually alive by placing the Holy Spirit in us to transform us and he keeps us adopted by he keeps us adopted in his family so here's the deal when god awakens you when he takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life when he resurrects you there's nothing 
that you can do to go back from to be spiritually dead. The moment that you're resurrected, you are alive forever. You've been awakened. You've been resurrected. Now, does it mean that we won't stumble? No. It, it means that we're still going to stumble. We're going to sin even after following Jesus because we're fighting this human nature and our human nature loves sin. Guys, I don't remember if you, you guys remember going growing up. I don't know when you grew up because I know we talked to a wide range of, of people. But I knew I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, I remember our farmhouse and we had our phone on the wall. And we had this literally, it was like an 18 foot cord that went from the receiver to the actual, like, I guess the headset or whatever the case may be. And so it was very curly. Have you? I think you guys know what I'm talking about. That's what the Christian life is like. See, we're on upward trajectory and things are going really, really well. I'm relying on God's strength. All of a sudden I try to do things on my own and then I sin. And then I keep going down and all of a sudden I repent and I go back up. It happens again. I'm doing good and all of a sudden... I sin, I repent, keep going. So our relationship with God, our faith, is very, it's on an onward trajectory. It's an upward trajectory, but it's cyclical. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And look, you may have a different trajectory than, than me, or I may have a different trajectory than you, but the fact is we all experience setback. It's all cyclical for all of us because we deal with a sin nature. But the fact is, he will never, ever, ever allow one of his own to fall away. So that means our faith, because it's centered on Christ, will bring us great joy. That's the third takeaway. Our faith, because it's centered on Christ, will bring us great joy. Man, some of us, man, we're living with so much anxiety because we are trying to, we're, we're trying to show God that we've done enough, that we're good enough to get in. And so we're stressed out. Is it enough? Am I enough? And then others of us, man, we're living with pain and suffering. And we're like, you know what? We're done with this, man. We've tried this. Obviously, God is mad at me because he's allowed me to deal with some stuff that other people aren't dealing with. So I'm just done with it. The fact is, for both groups of people and those in between, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. When we embrace that Jesus is enough, we have peace with God. We understand that salvation isn't in our hands because it's started and it's finished by God. Salvation isn't even our idea. It's God's idea that we benefit from. All right, the fourth takeaway, the reason why we'll have great joy is because we'll enter his presence innocent. Even with all the stumbling that you and I will experience, God will bring us into his presence without a single fault because Jesus took our place. And this is only possible because Jesus was willing to die for you and for me. He was willing to die and he rose again, defeating sin and death for good. Jesus was our willing substitute. I'm not sure if you, rem you, know, you know the story or even if you remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's there and he's praying. And one of the things that he says, God if you're willing to take the cup away from me. The cup that he's referring to 
is the cup of wrath that God had stored up to pour out on us because of our sin. And Jesus in his prayer says, God, I know this is going to be tough, but I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to drink of that cup. I'm willing to take their place. I'm willing to take upon on myself your wrath for their sin. I love what John Stott writes. He says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and yet God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Because I want you to know, in case you forgot, in case you didn't know, Jesus' love for you cost him something, and it cost him his life because he loves you. You are loved. Maybe you've heard um, of the crime of identity theft, or maybe you've been on the wrong end of that. See, that's what Jesus did, but in reverse. Without your permission, he assumed your identity. He stepped into your personal business between you and God. He took your place. He took control of your account as if it was his own. Not to add debt like a thief, but to pay your debt like a friend. And then Jude concludes, he says, all glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the presence, or in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Have you ever thought about Jude writing that? Jude was a guy who, he looked at his half-brother Jesus growing up and as Jesus sort of went public in his ministry at best, Jude thought Jesus was a fraud and at worst, a liar, a deceiver, a manipulator. Then all of a sudden, the resurrection changed everything for Jude. Then he saw his half-brother Jesus as his Lord and Savior. See, it took the resurrection to change his mind. Has the resurrection changed your mind? Has it changed your life? Jude wraps up with giving all credit to God. The word glory means the sum of all that God is and all that God does. Glory means the sum total of all that God is and all that God does. And since God is eternal, that means his glory is eternal. That means it's forever. Think if you called a timeout, what has God done for you in the last day, in the last week, in the last month, in the last year? What has God done? And then have you thanked him for his glory? who he is, and what he has done for you. Guys, remember the three questions I wanted us to keep in our mind. What does it matter what we believe? Like, Why does it matter what we believe? Uh, the reason is because we need clarity, direction, purpose, and we need to delineate between right and wrong. That's, that's why it matters what we believe. What do we believe? 
Well, as a church, we believe that Jesus changes everything. We read his story and his teachings through the Bible, and so we believe that the Bible should lead our church and it should lead our lives. What we do, what do we do with what we believe? Well, as a church, we believe in wholeheartedly following Jesus as the leader of our life. And that's why as a church, man, we are so committed to being both the truth and grace church. This is difficult because truth, as you know, is binary. It's either true or it's not true. And grace is more like an art than it is science. But we're committed to it. One of our guiding statements as a church is from Jude's brother James. And this is what he says. He says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not make it difficult is a phrase that shapes our orthopraxy. For us, we want to remove the behave barrier. We, we, don't, we, we want people to know that you can belong here before you believe. But we also want to be very clear that what we believe shapes how we behave. Like we want, we want people to understand that no one could behave their way in a relationship with God. You can, I can't. None of us can. See, we believe that the church should be a very safe place for skeptics to ask questions. It ought to be a hospital for the sick. And it also should be a training facility for those growing in their faith. We believe that the church should look a lot like Jesus. See, the church is described as the body of Jesus, and so we should look like Jesus. And so Jesus was well-liked by outsiders. Jesus cared about those in his life. Jesus welcomed those with doubts. Jesus accepted those who self-admittedly were far from God. Jesus made people feel like they belonged. Since 2007, man, we've seen some changes to the iPhone. In 2007, this is kind of like the phone looked like. I can't believe how small it is, right? And then in 2014, you know, we kind of upped the game a little bit. And this is, of course, a cracked screen. And then this is the one of the current versions. 2007, 2014, and. 21. They all look different, right? Shapes, sizes, they all look different, but the DNA is the same. See, the DNA of Apple is simplicity, sim, I'll get that right, simplicity, simplicity, privacy, user-friendly, battery life, multifunctional. That's the DNA of Apple. Making things simple, making things that will last a while, you know, battery life, privacy, user-friendly, multifunctional. See, our church's DNA hasn't changed. It's looked a lot different since 2017. Our music has changed. Our groups have looked a little different. Our location has looked a little different. Our environments have looked different, and our people have looked different. But our DNA hasn't changed. Who we are, what makes us as a church hasn't changed. See, we believe that our, the American culture needs more churches that are unapologetically in line with Christ and his teachings while building relationships with those who have yet to say yes to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, 
we land today with the book of uh, with the letter of Jude, I'm so incredibly thankful for you allowing us to have it. Almost 2,000 years later, we have it and we're reading it. And it's still as applicable today as it was back then. And that's just incredible. And that's just credit to who you are as that you are eternal. You are everlasting. So you're as relevant as you were then as you are now. Thank you. And Father, I ask that those who are afraid to trust Christ would allow the resurrection to change their opinion of you and it would change their life. And I pray for those who, God, we haven't given you much glory. We haven't given you much credit because of the things that you've done in our lives. And so, Father, I ask that we would just call a time out and we would thank you for what you've done. We would be very specific in what you've done for us. God, we love you. We're so thankful for what you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.